Chapter Three of Adam Bede. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Adam Bede by George Eliot. Chapter Three. After the preaching. In less than an hour from that time. Seth Bede was walking by Dinah's side along the hedgerow path that skirted the pastures and green cornfields which lay between the village and the hall farm. Dinah had taken off her little Quaker bonnet again, and was holding it in her hands that she might have a freer enjoyment of the cool evening twilight, and Seth could see the expression of her face quite clearly as he walked by her side timidly revolving something he wanted to say to her. It was an expression of unconscious placid gravity, of absorption in thoughts that had no connection with the present moment, or with her own personality, an expression that is most of all discouraging to a lover. Her very walk was discouraging. It had that quiet elasticity that asks for no support. Seth felt this dimly. He said to himself, She's too good and holy for any man, let alone me, and the words he had been summoning rushed back again before they had reached his lips. But another thought gave him courage. There's no man could love her better and leave her freer to follow the Lord's work. They had been silent for many minutes now, since they had done talking about Bessie Cranage, Dinah seemed almost to have forgotten Seth's presence, and her pace was becoming so much quicker that the sense of their being only a few minutes' walk from the yard gates of the hall farm at last gave Seth courage to speak. "'You've quite made up your mind to go back to Snowfield o oh Saturday, Dinah?' "'Yes,' said Dinah quietly. I'm called there. It was borne in upon my mind while I was meditating on Sunday night, as Sister Ellen, who's in a decline, is in need of me. I saw her as plain as we see that bit of thin white cloud, lifting up her poor thin hand and beckoning to me. And this morning, when I opened the Bible for direction, the first words my eyes fell on were, and after we had seen the vision, immediately we endeavoured to go into Macedonia. If it wasn't for that clear showing of the Lord's will, I should be loath to go, for my heart yearns over my aunt and her little ones, and that poor wandering lamb, Hetty Sorrel. I've been much drawn out in prayer for her of late, and I look on it as a token that there may be mercy in store for her. God grant it, said Seth, for I doubt Adam's heart is so set on her. He'll never turn to anybody else, and yet it you'd go to my heart if he was to marry her, for I cannot think as she'd make him happy. It's a deep mystery the way the heart of man turns to one woman out of all the rest he's seen I the world, and makes it easier for him to work seven year for her, like Jacob did for Rachel. 
sooner than have any other woman for the asking. I often think of them words, and Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days for the love he had to her. I know those words you'd come true with me, Dinah, if so be you'd give me hope, as I might win you after seven years was over. I know you think a husband you'd be taking up too much o' your thoughts, because St. Paul says she's that's married careth for the thing of the world how she may please her husband, and may happen you'll think me over-bold to speak to you about it again, after what you told me o' oh, your mind last Saturday. But I've been thinking it over again by night and by day, and I prayed not to be blinded by my own desires, to think what's only good for me must be good for you too. And it seems to me there's more texts for your marrying than ever you can find against it. For St. Paul says as plain as can be in another place, I will that the younger woman marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to adversary to speak reproachfully, and then two are better than one, and that holds good with marriage as well as with other things. For we should be o oh, one heart and o oh, one mind, Dinah. We both serve the same master, and are striving after the same gifts, and I'd never be the husband to make a claim on you as could interfere with your doing the work God has fitted you for. I'd make a shift, and fend indoor and out, to give you more liberty, more than you can have now, for you've got to get your own living now, and I'm strong enough to work for us both. When Seth had once begun to urge his suit, he went on earnestly and almost hurriedly, lest Dinah should speak some decisive word before he had poured forth all the arguments he had prepared. His cheeks became flushed as he went on, his mild grey eyes filled with tears, and his voice trembled as he spoke the last sentence. They had reached one of those very narrow passes between two tall stones, which performed the office of a stile in Loamshire, and Dinah paused as she turned towards Seth and said, in her tender but calm treble notes, Seth Bede, I thank you for your love towards me, and if I could think of any man as more than a Christian brother, I think it would be you. But my heart is not free to marry. That is good for other women, and it is a great and blessed thing to be a wife and mother, but as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every man, so let him walk. God has called me to minister to others, not to have any joys or sorrows of my own, but to rejoice with them that do rejoice, and to weep with those that weep. He has called me to speak his word, and he has greatly owned my work. It could only be on a very clear showing that I could leave the brethren and sisters at Snowfield who are favoured with very little of this world's good, where the trees are few, so that a child might count them, 
and there's very hard living for the poor in the winter. It has been given me to help, to comfort, and strengthen the little flock there, and to call in many wanderers. And my soul is filled with these things, from my rising up till my lying down. My life is too short, and God's work is too great for me to think of making a home for myself in this world. I've not turned a deaf ear to your words, Seth, for when I saw as your love was given to me, I thought it might be a leading of providence for me to change my way of life, and that we should be fellow helpers, and I spread the matter before the Lord. But whenever I tried to fix my mind on marriage, and our living together, other thoughts always came in, the times when I prayed by the sick and dying, and the happy hours I've had preaching, when my heart was filled with love, and the word was given to me abundantly. And when I've opened the Bible for direction, I've always lighted on some clear word to tell me where my work lay. I believe what you say, Seth, that you would try to be a help and not a hindrance to my work but I see that our marriage is not God's will. He draws my heart another way. I desire to live and die without husband or children. I seem to have no room in my soul for wants and fears of my own. It has pleased God to fill my heart so full with the wants and sufferings of his poor people. Seth was unable to reply, and they walked on in silence. At last, as they were nearly at the yard gate, he said, Well, Dinah, I must seek for strength to bear it, and to endure as seeing him who is invisible. But I feel now how weak my faith is. It seems as if, when you are gone, I could never joy in anything any more. I think it's something passing, the love of women, as I feel for you, for I could be content without your marrying me if I could go and live at Snowfield and be near you. I trusted, as the strong love God has given me towards you was a leading for us both, but it seems it was only meant for my trial. Perhaps I feel more for you than I ought to feel for any creature, for I often can't help saying of you what the hymn says. In darker shades, if she appear, my dawning is begun. She is my soul's bright morning star, and she my rising sun. That may be wrong, and I am to be taught better, but you wouldn't be displeased with me if things turned out so as I could leave this country and go to live at Snowfield? No, Seth, but I counsel you to wait patiently, and not lightly to leave your own country and kindred. Do nothing without the Lord's clear bidding. It's a bleak and barren country there, not like this land of Goshen you've been used to. We mustn't be in a hurry to fix and choose our own lot. We must wait to be guided. But you'd let me write you a letter, Dinah, if there was anything I wanted to tell you. Yes, sure, let me know if you're in any trouble. You'll be continually in my prayers. 
They had now reached the yard gate, and Seth said, I won't go in, Dinah, so farewell. He paused and hesitated after she had given him her hand, and then said, There's no knowing but what you may see things different after a while. There may be a new leading. Let us leave that, Seth. It's good to live only a moment at a time, as I've read in one of Mr. Wesley's books. It isn't for you and me to lay plans. We've nothing to do but to obey and to trust. Farewell. Dinah pressed his hand with rather a sad look in her loving eyes, and then passed through the gate, while Seth turned away to walk lingeringly home. But... Instead of taking the direct road, he chose to turn back along the fields through which he and Dinah had already passed, and I think his blue linen handkerchief was very wet with tears long before he had made up his mind that it was time for him to set his face steadily homewards. He was but three and twenty, and had only just learned what it is to love, to love with that adoration which a young man gives to a woman, whom he feels to be greater and better than himself. Love of this sort is hardly distinguishable from religious feeling. What deep and worthy love is so, whether of woman or child, or art or music? Our caresses, our tender words, our still rapture under the influence of autumn sunsets, or pillared vistas, or calm, majestic statues, or Beethoven sympathies all bring with them the consciousness that they are mere waves and ripples in unfathomable ocean of love and beauty. Our emotion in its keenest moment passes from expression into silence. Our love, at its highest flood, rushes beyond its object and loses itself in the sense of divine mystery, and this blessed gift of venerating love has been given to too many humble craftsmen since the world began for us to feel any surprise that it should have existed in the soul of a Methodist carpenter half a century ago, while there was yet a lingering afterglow from the time when Wesley and his fellow labourer fed on the hips and haws of the Cornwall hedges, after exhausting limbs and lungs in carrying a divine message to the poor. That afterglow has long faded away, and the picture we are apt to make of Methodism in our imagination is not an amphitheatre of green hills, or the deep shade of broad-leaved sycamores, where a crowd of rough men and weary-hearted women drunk in a faith which was a rudimentary culture, which linked their thoughts with the past, lifted their imagination above the sordid details of their own narrow lives, and suffused their souls with the sense of a pitying, loving, infinite presence, sweet as summer to the houseless needy. It is too possible that to some of my readers Methodism may mean nothing more than a low-pitched gables, up dingy streets, sleek grocers, sponging preachers, and hypocritical jargon, elements which are regarded 
as an exhaustive analyst of Methodism in many fashionable quarters. That would be a pity, for I cannot pretend that Seth and Dinah were anything else than Methodists, not indeed of that modern type which reads quarterly reviews and attends in chapels with pillared porticoes, but of a very old-fashioned kind. They believed in present miracles, in instantaneous conversations, in revelations by dreams and visions. They drew lots and sought for divine guidance by opening the Bible at hazard, having a literal way of interpreting the scriptures, which is not at all sanctioned by approved commentators, and it is impossible for me to represent their diction as correct, or their instruction as liberal. Still, if I have read religious history aright, faith, hope, and charity have not always been found in a direct ratio with a sensibility to the three concords, and it is possible, thank heaven, to have very erroneous theories and very sublime feelings. The raw bacon which clumsy Molly spares from her own scanty store, that she may carry it to her neighbour's child to stop the fits, may be a piteously inefficacious remedy but the generous stirring of neighbourly kindness that prompted the deed has a beneficent radiation that is not lost. Considering these things, we can hardly think Dinah and Seth beneath our sympathy, accustomed as we may be to weep over the loftier sorrows of heroines in satin boots and crinoline, and of heroes riding fiery horses, themselves ridden by still more fiery passions. Poor Seth, he was never on horseback in his life except once, when he was a little lad, and Mr. Jonathan Burge took him up behind, telling him to hold on tight, and instead of bursting out into wild accusing apostrophes to God and destiny, he is resolving, as he now walks homewards under the solemn starlight, to repress his sadness to be less bent on having his own will, and to live more for others as Dinah does. End of chapter 3